0: Welcome to Lost in Science, where you're getting science into your ears. I'm Manisha, and today we have some riveting stories for you all. Um, we have Chris, who will be talking to us about a fantasia Is that sort of the, the lack of a mind's eye? Yeah, it's something to do with the mind and the imagination. When he first told me about it, I thought it was some sort of Disney movie. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. And Claire, Claire, what
1: do you got for us? Well, I'm actually going to give a bit of an update on a disease that's been devastating our largest carnivorous marsupial in Australia, the Tasmanian devil facial tumour disease. So some new research has come out in the last week that has provided, I guess, a new avenue to hopefully save the population, which has been devastated over the last 10 years. How
0: about you, Manisha? I am actually going to talk about the meteor shower that we that we had yeah. yes i can't
1: wait to hear Yay. about it then on with the show Yay.
2: If I say to you to picture something in your mind's eye, does that mean anything? Can you can you do that?
0: Yes. Yes. Um, Think of a purple elephant. Go.
2: Well, but, you know, like it could like be anything. Just like pick, imagine if, something. Does it mean something to picture something in yeah, your mind's yeah, eye? Yeah yeah. 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 Well, for some people it doesn't. Some people have a condition that's called aphantasia. Felt a p h a n t a s i a. Uh, and you may have seen this bit. It's been a bit on the um, in the news or on social medias, And this is a condition where people you can't imagine images in your mind.
0: You're
1: kidding. They can't imagine imagining.
2: They can't. They, well, they <laughs> no. They can't imagine. They
1: <laughs> can't imagine. Period. They just can't imagine. Well, they probably can't imagine oh, imagining. Just, they just. I just it's step can't mate. imagine.
2: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it was the, the term was only yeah. coined in <laughs> last year by a neurologist um, Adam Zeman from the University of Exeter. Um, but he kind of first came across it in 2005 when he studied uh, a man who had lost the ability to see things in his mind's eye after having some, some minor surgery. And this bloke, he could he could still, you know, recognize things. He could say they did a test where he could recognize faces. He could put names to them. He could even describe them as he was asked to. They said, like, you know, he could say that Tony Blair had blue eyes for some reason. Um, <laughs> does he? I think so. Um, but he couldn't picture them in his mind. Um... So, you know, they did some, they did quite a few tests on this. They had this guy, this one particular subject, and they did like brain scans. So, if they showed him a face, then the, you know, the parts of the brain that are normally used for facial recognition would light up when he sees the face uh, and he could put a name to it, etc cetera, et cetera, like that. But if they just gave him a name, then those facial recognition parts didn't light up. But for normal people, people who aren't aphantasia, Persons, um, when you give them the name, then your facial recognition parts also light up because you see the face as well as the name. So, if I were to say to you, Tony Blair, for argument's sake, you can probably picture Tony Blair. Maybe. Got mm. it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Blue eyes, <laughs> unmistakable.
2: That's right. So this this is um like in two thousand and five there was uh it was. Reported on, there was an article in the New York Times and everything. Um, It was kind of a bit of a curiosity, but then they started from to hear from people who'd never had this ability, who'd been had aphantasia since birth, and this was kind of an unknown thing. Uh, And it was quite interesting because a lot of these people never knew that they had this particular condition. This one patient, earlier patient, recognized it because he had previously been able to visualize things, and so he knew when he lost that ability, he was able to say, "Oh, it's not like it was before." Whereas the people who have been like that way since birth, yeah. they How never you know, know anything different. Hmm. And yeah. it's been really interesting hearing them talk about what it's like because they often say things like they thought everyone was just kind of, well, not joking, but talking in metaphors. So when you say, I can imagine you know, a purple elephant, I can see myself walking down the beach. They just thought that was kind of, you know, I would like to walk down the beach is what you're saying. Not I can actually... That picture myself. Walking that is the so
1: hard to imagine not, not being, being able to, to do. Yeah. Imagine that is very diff- a very difficult mind exercise. It is.
2: It's to me. It's that whole thing of being able to put yourself in someone's head and imagine what they're doing. Yeah.
0: Now I'm picturing myself trying to picture not being a, this is not ending well.
2: <laughs> but you, can you imagine being the other way? What What are those people were like to discover this thing? Like one of them who wrote a, a big long post on Facebook said that, that it was like. It's reading a newspaper article that says scientists discover man without a tail and like you never knew people had tails or yeah. that it's kind of the opposite of finding out that you have a superpower it's finding that you you lack an ability that everyone else has yeah so maybe there's and some... no
1: one told you yeah Oh, it's kind of sad. Uh, they were kind
2: of telling you but you just didn't understand so this is like he described that you know what there has some other consequences as well he can't remember things that have happened. So he has a good memory for facts, but if he's asked to describe what he did yesterday or what his childhood was like, he, he can't do it. He has to memorise a response to say, oh, oh, growing in Miami was a bit of a disappointment. Um, <laughs> Poor Miami. There's another person who, who wrote in after the report in the New York Times that said that he was shocked that his girlfriend can remember what someone was wearing a year ago. He can't believe that you could just, just, any way you could remember what someone was looked like a year ago. Um, so, this is kind of interesting. It's to do with the way that our memories work. And this is another aspect of it. So, with our what they call our explicit memory, which is the memory where we consciously recall something, they often split that up into two types. There is the semantic memory and the episodic memory. So the semantic memory, that is your, your general knowledge of, you know, of facts, meanings, concepts, those sort of things. Um, whereas episodic memory is the actual, generally autobiographical memory. It's the personal events and things you've experienced, including the emotions as well as the times and the places that these things have happened. So, um, you know, for most people, these two things are very connected. So if you are, Ask um, to think of a dog your semantic memory will be the thing that has all the descriptions of what a dog is like you know the kind of the platonic ideal of what a dog is but that you'll probably picture an actual dog you know and um, you know your experience of a dog the understanding of a dog is related to what you've seen of dogs as well as what you've been told about dogs etc etc like that but with people with aphantasia these things are separated they don't have that that personal memory of the dog they just see they can understand the concept of a dog but they don't necessarily picture the dog and remember the experience of patting a dog or seeing a dog in their head
0: that sounds very sad
2: yeah there is there is a counter example because there is kind of a scale with this thing there is also hyperphantasia which is people have extremely vivid imagery uh and um this uh, Dr. Zeman, he has a test which he's created for, which, which he used in his paper that he, he published last year. Uh, you can find this test, uh, if you Google Aphantasia, if you can remember how to spell it, uh, you can find this test on the the BBC website, it's sort of interactive. And it's got questions like, I'd ask you say, to think of a relative or a friend, someone whom you frequently see, but mm-hmm. who is not in this room at the moment.
1: Uh, oh, yeah. um, all right, yeah. yeah.
2: And consider carefully the picture that you see in your mind's eye. Now, can you see, how vividly can you see the exact contours of their face, their head, their shoulders and body? Can you see the contours?
1: hmm
2: Yeah. How clearly can you see the, the poses of their head, like the way they normally hold themselves?
1: Pretty well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: What about how they, they step, you know, their walk, their walk, um, their they pace, their they carriage, as uh, it says? Sort of. Yeah, you can it's, see them walking.
1: It's, it's, it's getting a little bit blurrier. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. What about things like um, the colours of their clothes that they wear?
0: Yeah, I can yep. see that. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So yeah, there are different levels of this. So I can think we can on be- this test though that you're not aphantasia people. You're 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 real normal people. Uh, not not oh. that people with aphantasia aren't real. <laughs> no, because actually it the studies so far that they've done show that perhaps up to as many as one in fifty people. Uh, have aphantasia or aphantasic whatever you are so it does show I guess you know how much there is this difference difference in the way we experience the world and how much people vary Uh, and if we have more than 50 listeners I'm sure someone out there is going to be have aphantasia and we'd love to hear from you
1: There's been a bit of big news this week um, that scientists and researchers have found a potential new avenue of treatment Ooh. to help the ever dwindling population of Tasmanian devils. Oh, good. Yeah, from um, the devil facial tumour disease, which has been plaguing them for the last 20 years. Ooh. Yeah. Um, have you heard about the disease before? I have heard about the disease. I'm sure yeah. a lot of people have. I'm sure a lot of people have, yeah. And it's it's something that um, has got a lot of coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, but there hasn't really been a really sort of major breakthrough in the research sort of to look at um, how we can protect our current sort of populations. Yeah, right.
0: So how to like stop the spread of the infection. Kind exactly. Of yeah, right. yeah,
1: yep. yeah. So um, because there has been a fair bit of media, I thought I'd – Maybe just give a little bit of a background to the disease. So a bit of an introduction. So it was first noticed in the devil population in 1996. So it has been around for the last 20 years. Um, But in the 10 years since 96, it... Um, It pretty much – it massively ravaged the wild population of Tassie devils, like hugely affecting the population with declines of around 85% in some of the populations and a lot of the um, northwest of Tasmania Mm -hmm. mainly. Um, Naturally, with population declines that were steep like this, a lot of research went into what the hell this awful disease was, how – it was transmitted. um, What like, you know, just to get a bit of a handle on, on why this is happening at this time. Um, So what researchers and scientists have found out about the disease since then has been, you know, it's just been sort of one awful thing after the next, but, but sort of shedding a little bit of light onto what this disease is, what this cancer is. So um, the devil, the Tassie devil facial tumor disease is actually, it's, highly contagious um, and it's also clonally transmissible so that means that um, it's spread among individual devils by when the devils have a social interaction when yep, they stop contact? when they yeah when whenever mm-hmm. they contact so these um, tumors appear on their faces and then normally if you ever see devils in the zoo or you might see them in the wild, they spend a lot of time um, fighting over their food. They are extremely noisy. They're
0: actually, yeah, really uh, not Quite, violent, but mm, but yeah, sort of violent. Yeah, like yeah. there's a lot of nipping and a lot of playing yeah. and a lot of and that it's a big part of all of their behavior.
1: Yeah. So, um, this I guess is pretty important because they do do a lot of nipping and a lot of fighting, um, and this is one of the main reasons why this facial tumour spread through the population so quickly right. because the devils were having so much interaction with each other. And, and the, um, as soon as one devil bit another devil that had a facial tumour, it would, it would get that tumour and it would Right. Cause it, it's contagious. Cause it's contagious. Exactly. Um, now the devil facial tumour disease cells are also able to avoid host immune recognition. So, um, they, they do this by downregulating something called the MHC or the Major Histocompatibility Complex. Um, so the MHC is part of our genetic code. It helps us with our immunity. It's like it's like the immunity that we inherited from our parents. Yeah, you know, um, and from our parents' parents. It's like it's it's written within our DNA, um, and it's a really important part of offering you know some protection. But this cancer actually actually down regulates that so really? it makes the the devil's a bit more immune suppressed yep um and then once the devil facial tumor sets in it it you know you see metabolic wasting in the devil so they get really skinny they can't feed anymore um Poor and devils. oh it's awful hmm. and 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 then it's also found they've also found that um um, it affects organs. Um, it, it can be really invasive, it can dissolve bones, oh, it can geez. invade the heart. It's just just the nastiest yeah. piece of work that yeah. you'll you'll ever come across.
0: You weren't kidding when you said it was just one bad thing after. Oh, another. just Jeez. awful. Like it's great that we
1: have so much information now, but it's it's just oh, like yeah. it's... to discover these things as well would be heartbreaking, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And in terms of resistance, they found around six females who've had some sort of partial immunity. Oh yeah, yeah, but um, but nothing, no like whole population that that's immune to it, and because it is attacking or um, it is involved in sort of suppressing the immune system, it's it, it means that most devils are really susceptible to it. Yeah, um, yeah. So the scientific community realized pretty early on that, that what they were coming up against was pretty pretty evil, um, and you know we need to think of new innovative ways to um, immunise the devils against this disease before we can start letting any devils back into the wild. So I guess there's been two sort of prongs of approach. So one, one prong is trying to find a way to immunise the devils and the other prong is trying to um, keep populations of the devils safe. So yeah. there's been a whole lot of research and, um, and resources put into getting together devil populations for um sort of insurance populations on the mainland and in tassie as well and in zoos and stuff um but yeah so this is sort of like the other prong approach where we're sort of trying to find out how to immunize the devils this is where this new research comes in oh cool um and it was just released in um in nature scientific reports and it details um this avenue of therapy to protect our devils against the facial tumour disease. Um, it actually uses the devil themselves, the devil themselves, the devils themselves and their natural antibodies to, Oh, cool! yeah, to help, um, help fight the disease.
2: Now, so, yeah. Okay, so yeah.
1: these findings all hinge on the fact that there are certain antibodies that we produce um, that are naturally occurring that, that help, fight tumors and have these what are called anti-tumor cytotoxic activities. Yep. And one of the main antibodies that's involved in this is something called immunoglobulin M. So it's the M version of the antibody immunoglobulin. The
0: M version. It's a good yeah,
1: version. Yeah, yeah. It's the M for <laughs> <laughs> So currently um, there are actually therapies using this um, immunoglobulin, immunoglobulin M um, that have been shown to reduce neuroblastomas and melanoma in humans. Oh,
0: cool. Okay. Yeah.
1: So it's sort of um, currently out there in yep. cancer research, but they're applying it to um, to devils and yep. the facial tumour. Yep. Um, so in this new study, the researchers investigated first if there was any interaction between this immunoglobulin M um, and the devil facial tumor and um, and the possibility of developing therapies mm. then using those antibodies. Um, first, they compared antibodies found in Tasmanian devils with the tumor and antibodies in Tasmanian devils without the tumor, and they found that um, those animals that had more immunoglobulin M relative to another immunoglobulin g were less likely to have the mm. devil facial tumor so it's sort of like this ratio this like
0: m to g ratio. yeah this
1: m to g antibody ratio increases your chances of um, not either surviving the or not getting this facial tumor or being able to fight it off or being of able thing. to yep. fight it off exactly so it's pretty exciting news. It sort of, yeah, it shows that by having these relatively higher immunoglobulin M antibodies, a devil has a higher chance of staying tumour free. Yeah, cool. Which is, which is amazing. Yeah,
0: it would be.
1: Yeah. Um, and so the researchers think the next step might be that they can develop these anti-tumour vaccines um, that could involve the antibodies. Um, or enhance the production of the devil's own natural antibodies. Yep. Um, or alternatively, direct treatment of the cancer with this immunoglobulin M um, could be a solution to help halt the disease. And this is actually a process called active immunotherapy, and it's becoming sort of more and more accepted in the treatment of human cancers so it could be I
0: was just about to ask if it's used in cancer treatments
1: yep yep so it could be um, a really big first step to help fight extinction for the devils
0: yeah that's really good yeah that's really exciting that's really uplifting
2: Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
0: This month, some of you, unfortunately not me, not Claire, um, but some of you may have caught a glimpse of a beautiful meteor shower. Uh, overnight on the 5th, so early morning on the 6th of May, um, um, Etaquard is one of the most spectacular meteor showers uh, viewed in the summer southern hemisphere. It's actually one of two showers. So in case you missed it, keep your ears out, or well, your eyes out, for the Orionids, which take place around October, or well, Ida acquired or Eda acquired It returns every year, so it'll come back in April or May of next year.
1: Really? So it is. It it happens around it, the same time every year. as well? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's an annual. So these are a pair of annual meteor showers. So if you've missed it this year, you you're in um you can. Catch it
1: next year. Just just wait another 11 months and yep. it'll be...
0: Or just wait until October again. for its pair. It's so pair, whatever. Right. Um, all right. So before I go on, I just wanted to get some terms in order because I was very confused as I was researching this. So follow me if you can. A meteoroid, meteoroid is a small particle from a comet or asteroid orbiting the sun. When the meteoroid enters the Earth's atmosphere and vaporizes, it becomes a meteor... All right. So up until then, it
1: isn't a meteor.
0: No, it's a meteoroid meteoroid. until it enters the Earth's atmosphere. Then it's a meteor and then meteors are what we call shooting stars. And if the meteoroid passes through the atmosphere, it becomes a meteor and then the meteor um, doesn't completely vaporize and actually lands on Earth, Mm -hmm. that's a meteorite. Right. Yes. So different terms depending on where they are in relation to the Earth. Um, And then also comets and asteroids. They're both celestial bodies that orbit the sun, orbit around the sun. Yep. And asteroids are made out of metals and rocky materials, while comets are made out of ice and dust. When a comet comes near the sun, um, the gas and ice melt or streak and it contributes to the tail. So an easy way to tell the two apart is that an asteroid doesn't have a tail while a comet does.
1: Mm.
0: Cool. Good. Yeah. All right. Are I'm we all on that. this space page? I'm a- <laughs> <laughs> We got I'm this. A- Back to Ida Accord. Ida acquired and the Orionids are the result of Earth or- Earth's orbit going through the tail of Halley's Comet. I'm sure most, oh. yeah, I'm sure most, if not all of our listeners have heard of Halley's Comet, which is uh, arguably the most famous comet. The meteoroids, meteoroids, in, um... Meteoroids, still in the sky. Still out of the atmosphere. Got it. In Ida Quarid and um, the Orionids are the icy debris of Halley's Comet. These meteoroids are some of the fastest. um, So these meteors are some of the fastest of any shower and they travel almost 239,000 kilometers an hour. Um, Ida Quarid- It's real fast. It's real fast. fast. Yep, like the flash. (laughs) (laughs) The original flash. Flash in real life. Yep. That's it. That's where the inspiration comes from. Um, Ida gets its name from its apparent radiant point in the constellation Aquarius, uh, near one of its brightest stars, Ida Um, A Radiant is the spot where the meteor appears to originate from. And that means that, well, the meteor doesn't actually originate from the constellation, but from our vantage point on Earth, it seems to. For the Orionids, the radiant is Orion. Again, you can see the matches in the name. And um, for those of you who did observe Ida Card this year, you would have seen about 30 to 60 meteors per hour, which is a lot. That would have been a beautiful shower. It would have been a very beautiful sight. Yeah. So, again, remember for October or next April to find a nice spot out of the city light pollution to view it.
1: Is there a best place in Australia to view these showers? No, it's
0: actually really brilliant in the Southern Hemisphere in general, the Eta choir is at least. And so so if you can find a place that's just not very uh, obscured by light pollution, you'll be pretty good. Um, Okay, so I mentioned that the showers are a result of the famous Halley's Comet. Records of Halley's Comet date all the way back to 239 BC when the comet was recorded in Chinese chronicles, and it, it reoccurs every 75 years. So that's how long it takes for Halley's Comet to orbit around the sun once. Uh, the last time it was visible was in 1986, and it's predicted to return in 2061. The, so we
1: got a bit of a time. Yeah. A so bit of time to wait for Halley's Comet back here. Yeah.
0: I, so yeah, it, it was last year sooner than it'll be next year. so that's sad. Um, the Edaqua showers have actually been going on for centuries, uh, but most but was described by astronomers only in the late 1800s. Uh, the, a few astronomers contributed to the description with some key findings and observations. First, an American astronomer named Hubert Anson Newton discovered records of a reoccurring meteor shower. These showers were all described around the same time of the year, and, all dated, and they dated all the way back to the year 401. So Newton discovered that in past logs and observations, there was a pattern, and he suggested that this was actually a reoccurring meteor shower, so it was the same one that we were observing. Then, in 1870, G.L. Tupman, a member of the Italian Meteoric Association, discovered that discovered the shower that Newton had described and then he confirmed it again the following year so he confirmed that it is a reoccurring shower finally in 1876 a british astronomer alexander stuart herschel was the one to determine that this meteor was act, or sorry meteor shower was actually a result of halley's comet because he used a m- series of mathematical calculations to track the comet Halley's comet was closest to the Earth in early May, and its radiant was also in Aquarius, which aligned well with the other research that was described. Um, But even after it was described, new accounts of the shower were infrequent because this shower is, as I mentioned before, most spectacular in the Southern Hemisphere. And there, there at the time, were fewer meteorologists in the Southern Hemisphere that were connected to the bigger meteorological associations. I did try to um, search for some accounts from southern from the southern hemisphere but i didn't actually come across any Um, instead the orionids which are more more visible in the northern hemisphere have a lot more um, has a lot more historical accounts Um, but anyways even though the orionids are more visible in the northern hemisphere we still have a decent vantage point from the southern hemisphere so i really urge you to keep an eye out for the shower in october and now that you know what you're looking at, you can anticipate a beautiful show and a wonderful astronomical display, which should tide us over until Haley's Comet returns. Get your picnic rugs out and start looking at the stars. Oh, yeah, it would be so lovely. So lovely. Camping.
2: That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Science!